is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul. Welcome to Holly Weird, a podcast about celebrity deaths and the strange events in Tinseltown and beyond. We are your hosts, Megan Carpenter and Liz Shire. This episode is a collection of the macabre, celebrity stories united by a single thread. Linked in their deaths, years, even decades apart, these names will be spoken together in the same conversation for years to come. Ask and you shall receive. This is the 27 Club. For those of you wondering, what is the 27 Club? Liz, are you wondering what the 27 Club is? Um, For the sake of the segment, yes, I am. (laughs) The 27 Club is a list of mostly popular musicians, artists, and actors who all died at age 27. It's become what one would call a cultural phenomenon. People are obsessed with the allure of these celebrities who passed away at a young age at the height of their fame as they were martyrs to their art. But mainly, it's just tragic coincidence. So this episode will be a collection of members of the 27 Club. What will this episode not be? We're not going to cover Kurt Cobain in this episode. The godfather of grunge was already featured in Hollyweird in his very own episode um, towards the beginning of our series. Revisit Hollyweird episode six for all the details on Kurt's passing and legacy. Liz, are we going to cover everyone? Um, no, we're not. We're not magicians. Uh, there's just way too much to cover for an appropriately length episode. We don't want to have you guys here for three hours. Um, However, if we leave out anybody that you want to hear about, please email us, DM us. We're going to include it in the future episode about that person. So we got you covered. Yeah. So um, anyone that you hear on this episode, uh, we still might devote a single episode to them in the future. So like Liz said, um, anything that you agreed with, disagreed with, we might have left out. Let us know and we'll be sure to include it at that time. Right. And by, you know, the whole reason we're doing this episode is because we got so many requests for it. This wasn't originally I'm, on our radar. I know. I'm actually, I'm kind of nervous. I'm worried we're not going to do it justice only because this is by far like our most highly requested episode. I, I mean, I think we will because we love our listeners. <laughs> and I also want to say that because we listen to you guys and we listen to your feedback. And if there is something that you want to hear about, we love hearing about facts. We get... Um, Facebook messages from people who have like inside like info or like tea about certain people they give us sources like we love that so if we're you know please be nice but if you want to hear more about something please let us know and we want to cover it so for this episode there's a lot to cover Liz and I will be covering it together conversationally um, with that a slight format change so I think those are the ground rules shall we go clubbing (laughs) Yeah, let's go. I like that one. <laughs> when I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. Till I get to the bottom and I see you again. 
So we're going to take these in chronological order. Um, I like that, that, logical. Yes. Yeah, I had to, you know, there's a method to the madness. Um, I, <laughs> I also thought it would be important, too, for the first three people that we cover, and you'll see why. Um, they all passed kind of closely together. And I actually, before I dug in, I... Uh, I was wrong about I about the order in which I assume they pass. So, um, you know, just pay close attention to the order in which we're going because it is chronological. So with that, our first member of the 27 Club is Jimi Hendrix. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. Jimi Hendrix was an American rock guitarist, singer, and songwriter. Though only famous for a career of four years, he is one of the most celebrated musicians of the 20th century and one of the most celebrated guitarists of all time. He is most known for such hits as Hey Joe, The Wind Cries Mary, and Purple Haze. On September 18, 1970, Hendrix was found unresponsive by German figure skater and artist <laughs> Monica Danneman. So his yeah, girlfriend, you... Monica, his girlfriend, Monica, but like she was a German figure skater and artist. That's like such a no one is a German figure skater and artist. So I, I felt like it, it was an iconic description of this woman. Okay. September 18th, 1970, Jimmy was found unresponsive by his girlfriend, Monica Daneman, in her London apartment. The two were in a casual relationship. Um, You'll learn Jimmy had several girlfriends. Um, And they spent the last few days of his life together. Upon finding him unconscious and alerting the authorities, Hendrix was rushed by ambulance to the hospital where resuscitation attempts were made to no avail. Jimi Hendrix was pronounced dead shortly after his arrival to the hospital. I just, you know, going over that is like, can you imagine being this German figure skater and being like, oh, like, I'm with this famous musician. This is really fun. This is just a casual thing. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. Like, oh, my, like, God damn it. That's like... I know. Ugh. <laughs> I added a couple pictures of Monica to our Google Doc. Do you guys want... Do you want to describe for our listeners what Monica looks like in these pictures? Oh, my goodness. It's very, very 1970. Um, uh-huh. She's like... She's got the long, blonde 70s hair. She's in a very... <laughs> I love this figure skating. But she got a thick bang. It's It's very 70s. Extremely 70s. It's quintessential. Yes. Yeah. So after he passed, uh, an autopsy was performed, and it was revealed that Hendrix aspirated on his own vomit while intoxicated with barbiturates. Asphyxia is his cause of death. Daneman stated that Hendrix had taken nine of her prescribed Vesperix sleeping pills, um, which at nine nine pills is 18 times the recommended dosage. Y'all, this is why your doctor will not give you a Lunesta, okay? Like, this is, like, (laughs) this is, oh my gosh. It's hard to imagine. that's that's a lot. I mean, as we talk about many times, I feel like the theme of our podcast is, like, 
really be careful when you do drugs. <laughs> like, <laughs> please don't, please don't mix things. Like, please don't <laughs> take too much. Like, just be aware because I feel like so much of the people that we cover now, these things aren't even available anymore because of how bad it got. Yeah. I hate to ask, like, are you familiar with fest breaks? Because, like, I feel, I think about, like, our Heath episode, and we went down the laundry list, and you're like, that drug does blah, blah, blah. That drug is blah, blah, blah. And, like, you, like, knew everything about all the drugs. Like, are you saying that I'm a know-it-all? Because <laughs> I am. Um, no, as some of you know, I work in psych, and I actually really, really like learning about medication. If it didn't require me to get my fucking md i would have gone to school for a psychiatrist so vasprax i've actually never heard of it it must be old okay they're all high and hydroxyzine so they're all in the same family so it was like more like a sedative which that's what sleeping pills are but this sound so it still uses the barbiturate components so that's probably why no one uses barbiturates anymore because they were so dangerous like now we know that gotcha. just like quaaludes gotcha. aren't available anymore because they're gonna kill you okay thank you (laughs) you're so welcome pharmacy corner thank you for listening to pharmacy corner um all right so (laughs) leading up to the death of Jimi hendrix uh he had been in poor health he was fatigued from overwork and a lack of sleep again we know that'll do weird shit to you heath ledger yep Um, as well as an assumed influenza illness. Additionally, um, so this this example just goes to show um, that he, like, may have had a little bit of a problem with these types of drugs. Um, He was turned away from a jam session. Let me say that again. A jam session at a jazz club with the band War, that's the band's name, due to seemingly drug-related disorientation on September 15th, so three days before his death. Uh, he was well enough to play the next evening, so he just wasn't great on the 15th. But imagine how, like, messed up he must have been for a band to be like, no thanks, Jimi <laughs> Hendrix. We don't want you tonight. <laughs> like, that's exactly what I was thinking. A jam session at a jazz club in 1970. Like, no holds barred. Everything was on the table. And they're like, actually, dude, you can't be here. Like, that's got to be yeah. pretty bad. And not only dude, but, like, the greatest guitarist of all time. No, 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 thanks, go home. Right. Oh so God. he must have been pretty messed up. Yeah. Um, but that jam session then the night after on the 16th would be the last time he played in public. Hmm. I added a photo to our Google Doc. You know what? We should post some of these photos then. I feel like every, every now and then, like, it helps us get through this. Um, and we're like, let's describe the picture. We should post some of these pictures at some point. Um, But anyway, this photo was taken the day before his passing on September 17th um, at a hotel. He is sitting outside in what looks like a garden at like a little table um, with a very elegant tea set, Mm -hmm. enjoying a cup of tea. And he has a guitar on his lap. Um, That guitar, I know, is the one he called Black Beauty. Um, And... He looks tired. He doesn't look great. He could be either making a pouty model face uh-huh. or he looks really tired and he looks like he's out of it. Yeah. So on the day before his death, again, where this photo would have been taken, Hendrix and Daneman spent the day in London running some errands in the afternoon. They spent the evening together at a friend's apartment where they ended up 
fighting about the attention Hendrix was giving to other females there. Mm-mm. They left that party. They went to another party. By now it was after midnight where they took amphetamines and they were home by 3 a.m. Because they had taken amphetamines after midnight at the second party, they each took sleeping tablets when they got home. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, 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 no. No, it's called a speedball. Don't do it. God damn it. Okay. Uh, but Danneman said that Hendrix was asleep and breathing the next morning around 10 when she left to buy cigarettes. And when she got home around 11, he was still breathing, but he was unconscious and unresponsive. And that's when she called the ambulance around 11 a.m. The paramedics found Hendrix covered in vomit and unresponsive and Danneman nowhere to be found when they arrived. They, they took Hendrix to the hospital around 1130, but he was pretty much dead on arrival. Uh, he was cold and blue when he arrived at the hospital. Oh. First of all, can I just say, he was breathing when I left for cigarettes at 10 a.m. is one of the most 1970s things that could like, ever <laughs> be said. Like, geez. So why do you think that she ran away? I have no idea. And we'll we'll get there later on, but like her story has kind of changed depending on who she told it to. Hmm. So I mean, she could have been messed up also and genuinely like the way I look at it is she could have genuinely not had the presence or the frame of mind to be able to like look at him and be like, Eek, he's unwell. Um because she was probably fucked up. But um. yeah I don't know <laughs> like I guess the like when did he well we know he aspirated on that vomit when did that vomit happen like yeah. before or after you called the paramedics I think is the real like I guess in her story here as what I just described it would have been after because she said he was um, breathing still but just she couldn't wake him up and that's why she called paramedics but um, when they got there, he was covered in blood and not or not covered in blood, covered in vomit and not not breathing. So, right. like, like, when did that happen? And girl, why'd you leave? So, well, maybe that's why she left, because either she didn't notice the vomit was there before or she did notice and just didn't either. Didn't or like, have, yeah, yeah, maybe she told and like maybe. And this is all conjecture and assumption, but like maybe she called and then ran back to him. And maybe after she ran back to him, she realized that he was dead. So like maybe she was like, gotta go. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like fight or flight or like maybe she was just honestly like really freaked out. I don't know. Right. And then of course we have to take into consideration that if you're abusing substances, you're not in your right state of mind and you're not, you're just not thinking clearly. Correct. So an autopsy revealed that there were no signs of scarring, um, which would have suggested intravenous drug use. No types of drugs were in play where the modality would have been intravenous, if that makes sense. It was all like an oral barbiturate consumption. So Um, that's interesting because I always thought he died of heroin overdose. Right. I know. I think I did too. And he did not. So his left lung was partially collapsed and there was fluid in his chest and vomit in his bronchi. (sighs) So all of those signs pointed to inhalation of vomit due to barbiturate intoxication as the cause of death. 
his body would be taken back uh, to Seattle. Uh, that's where he was originally from. Um, and he was buried in the same cemetery as his mother. Can I just sidebar and say that, like, so have you seen uh, Breaking Bad? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Remember season three when Jane dies? Yeah. I had to stop. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I had to okay. stop watching after that because number one, that was really traumatic. Number two, I love that character and I could not forgive Walter White. But just like, it scares me. I know we're constantly like on this podcast, like, oh, is, is that the worst way to die? Like, is that the worst way to go? But like, to be so fucked up, like, depressants suppress your parasympathetic nervous system so it can't react, it can't do anything. So to be that fucked up and then to have that like physical reaction of vomiting and not be able to do anything about it like and then you die on it oh my god it just like freaks me out it freaks me I don't I think it might freak me out more than anything we ever talked about yeah I mean the only thing you could hope for is that he wasn't conscious or aware for any anything that was happening like he I guess, quintessentially was not present for his death, if that makes sense. Right. And that does make sense. And then uh, that makes me feel better about the person that's going through it. But I guess just like, maybe I'm just thinking about the scene where Walter White just watches her die. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, you're not fucking doing anything. Like, oh. Yeah. I know. So moving on to the doubt of Monica. Tony Brown uh, is a man who wrote a book called Jimi Hendrix, The Final Days, And in preparation and in the process of writing this book, he had been in routine contact with Monica up until her death, which we will get to. And he reported that her story of the days leading up to Jimmy's death and the morning of his death would change slightly each time he spoke with her. And it made him have doubts. And additionally, people have found it strange that, just like you mentioned, she wasn't at the apartment when the paramedic showed up. Mm. So, um. I guess the point of that little tidbit is the man who wrote the book about Jimmy's final days questioned Monica. Uh, Monica would die in 1996 at age 50 from carbon monoxide poisoning. Pause. How Actually, found- th- this is this is my worst fear. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. Twice so, in one episode. This is it. Oh, oh, I just got like, yeah, like scary shivers. Um, so basically what happened is in my research, I got as far as like, okay, this his body was returned to Seattle, the end. And then I'm sitting here like, what happened to Monica? Like, I feel like that would be traumatic. So I Google Monica, and the first thing I see is that she is no longer with us, but she died at age 50. And I was like, okay, that in, in itself is pretty young. What happened? And I see cause of death, carbon monoxide poisoning. And I was like, sheesh um so her death was um a suicide that would come two days after losing a libel suit brought against her by another one of hendrick's girlfriends kathy etchingham whoa yes so kathy etchingham um was a girlfriend of Jimi hendrix who in Megan's summary, was a justice for Jimmy Crusader. So she kind of spent, um, you know, time trying to do right by Jimmy after his passing. And 
Um, Monica, whom we know from the account of the party that night, she and Jimmy obviously had issues about his affections of other women. Like, basically, um, she would just go on to, like, libel and slander Kathy Etchingham from whatever internal insecurity she had. But we're talking 35 years later. And it's still happening. And they went to court. And Monica lost. And then she died by suicide. Isn't that almost even more crazy than Jimi Hendrix's passing? Yeah, I guess I should say something because viewers, listeners cannot see my face. It's just like, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Why? And so now I'm thinking to myself, like, why would you kill yourself after a libel suit? Like, it's not like anybody said you were downloading kitty porn or blah, blah, blah. But then I'm like what is the mental state of somebody who is still trying to slander somebody 35 years later? Like, right. So I'm guessing like she probably realistically, like not that I'm saying you would ever get over the death of your boyfriend, but she certainly never got over the events of what happened in those final days. Period. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like how old was she at that point? Um, I, I do not know, but let's do some simple math. Um, 1996, uh, to 1970 is 26 years, 50 minus 26, 24. So she was approximately 24 years old when Jimi Hendrix passed at age 27. Uh, thank you so much for doing that math that I could not. Also, I almost asked how old Jimi Hendrix was and then I remember what we're doing. <laughs> so... <laughs> classic uh i promise i'm here um so i don't know it sounds like it was a turbulent time in her life who knows what happened like who knows i'm thinking about like almost famous this sounds like a darker almost famous like drugs parties like traveling around the world like famous people like who knows what happened in that time it sounds like Maybe at the end of her life, she was still experiencing things. So it sounds like maybe it was traumatic. Maybe it was, like, you know, a reason why she couldn't kind of get past it. Yeah. So for Jimmy himself, um, Jimmy had a very traumatic childhood and and adolescence. I mean, Liz, as a family therapist, like, every story you've ever heard, Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. Everything. All of it. Um... Those are stories that I think we would save for a Jimi Hendrix episode. Um, But just for the record, he had an extremely traumatic childhood, which, um, you know, kudos to him for overcoming and becoming like the most successful musician of all time. Um, You know, he took his talent to places that many could only dream of. So good for Jimi. Jimi Hendrix served in the army. Hmm. Um, It was one of those go to jail or join the army situations after he was caught riding in a stolen car. So uh, he chose army. And there are some good stories there and especially about how he he was a a a paratrooper. Yeah, they are the ones who jump out with parachutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, he was a paratrooper. There are some good stories there that I would say we could save as well, Um, which I wanted to include that bit, though, because 
I think Jimmy's most notable performance of all time is the Star Spangled Banner performance at Woodstock, um, which was a political message. Um, the sound effects that he was able to create with his guitar to make it sound violent and like war, many interpreted as a political statement, which when you have the context that he served in the army, um, that kind of adds another element to that, I think. Mm-hmm. I can hear it in my mind. I'm kind of getting like chills thinking about it. It's really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, um, as far as his career goes, um, I think there's a really interesting perspective um, with race there. So, Jimi Hendrix was African-American and Native American, but when you think about how he was revered by white people and white culture, um, <clears throat> he dated white women, he played um, at primarily white festivals and for white people and things like that. He was considered um, like a sellout by his black community. And uh, there, there were instances where he was like booed or shunned, like shunned is probably too strong of a word, but like um, booed by people of his own racial makeup. So um, like, I think that's an interesting conversation that, uh, I'd be willing to have too if we did a Jimi Hendrix episode. Yeah, that's um, super interesting. So, what do you think? What's your hot take on Jimi Hendrix, Liz? My hot take is, it's incredibly sad. He's one of the best guitarists, best musicians of all time. And it's just, like, such a waste. Such a waste of his talent, such a waste of his spirit. Like, imagine, like, the things that he could have done if he had continued on. Like, he would have knocked, I feel like, everybody out of the park. Totally. Um, so yeah, everyone, let us know uh, what you think of Jimi Hendrix. Um, DM us, email us, let us know. Moving on chronologically in this adventure, um, our next Twenty Seven Club member is Janis Joplin. For context, because I think this is super important, and I had no idea, Janis Joplin died 16 days after Jimi Hendrix. That is crazy. That is like, I I, I don't even know what to say about that. I know, crazy. So Janis Joplin was an American singer-songwriter of the Woodstock era, a singer of rock, soul, blues. She was known for her powerful, guttural vocals and her very large stage presence, best known for her songs Me and Bobby McGee and Peace of My Heart. So jumping right to her passing 
on October 4th, 1970, producer Paul Rothschild became concerned when Joplin didn't show up for a recording session. So that evening, he phoned Joplin's friend, John Cook, who managed her backing band, Full Tilt Boogie. Pause. Is there a more, like, hippie music <laughs> band name than Full Tilt Boogie? This is this is uh, why it works so well together, Meg, because was, that was exactly what I was thinking. Like, oh my god, are you kidding me? No, Like, there would, there would never be a band today in 2020 named Full Tilt Boogie. It's I know, just... they might as well just want to call it, like, Smoke a Doobie Band. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my god. So anyway... Cook, who was the manager of that band, and Joplin were staying at the Landmark Motor Hotel. And uh, Rothschild asked Cook to go look for her since they were staying at the same hotel. Right away, he noticed her Porsche Cabriolet in the parking lot. Um, so he assumed he was in. she was in her room. And when he went to her room, she was dead on the floor beside her bed. So... Um, let's take a little bit of a turn. I just have to talk about this car for a second, because if we thought Full Tilt Boogie was the most hippie thing to come up this story, I think it's actually this Porsche Cabriolet. So I'm going to describe for you. Um, so this is a little two seater convertible soft top Porsche. Um, Nothing special in, like, make or model, but she has it painted in a psychedelic scenescape. <laughs> um, it is pink, it is red, it is blue, it is green, it is yellow, it is white, it is brown. Um, I see, like, a mountain in a rolling into a hill. Um, this car is a crazy Meg, do you know what this reminds me of i don't know if you ever did this in high school or at time before you were 21 do you remember the hookah lounge in in our hometown what was it called um i do know what you're talking about i don't know what it, i don't remember what it was called and i had never been there okay that makes sense um it was na and nasty and like weird and gross but everybody went there and my mom used to be like, you shouldn't do that. And I was like, I know. Sorry, Mom. But they had, okay, what the frick was it called? I'll do a little future Liz segment and put it in here. But in classic, like, trying to be cool fashion, they had regular-ass ceiling tiles. Like, that you would find, like, an office building. Like, those giant ones that look, like, porous. I don't know what they're called. Mm -hmm. But each one was painted. And I can't even tell you how much bad art how many caterpillars smoking a hookah how many like <laughs> it just so this is actually really well done and cool and, like clearly someone did it the right way because it's on a car and it's still intact and it's like actually really good artwork but it <laughs> the vibe reminds me of these ceiling tiles at the hookah of your bar. local hookah lounge <sighs> okay okay so we um drove off um to the side to talk about this car and we are rounding the bend and before we get back on track i want to talk about this hotel room for a second so uh the landmark motor hotel is in los angeles i didn't put that context in when i was describing this earlier the landmark motor hotel still exists and the motel room um that janice joplin died in is still available for you to stay in so as you would imagine, B, 
because of her immense popularity, fan base, fan dedication, um, this like motel room has become somewhat of a shrine to Janis Joplin, but it's like in the closet. <laughs> so like, uh, it could be like a normal looking motel room that you're in and you just want to like hang up your jacket and you open the closet and it's like wall to wall Janis Joplin graffiti. And, um, there's actually like a plaque, like a silver plaque in there. Um, where it says, like, this wall is dedicated to Janis Joplin. I gotta admit, it's a very regular-looking motel room. Um, uh-huh. And this is some kind of sad graffiti. Like, there's yeah. a decent illustration of what it looks like Janis Joplin. And then it just, like, bubble letter. I don't know. I'd be yeah. sad if this is my graffiti wall when I die. Yeah, I mean, it does look kind of like... The inside of a high school bathroom stall. That's exactly what it looks like. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, if you're ever there, it's available for you to check out. Um, So rounding the bend back to 1970, and here we are. While there was alcohol found in the room, there was no evidence of drug paraphernalia or narcotics, but it was later revealed that a friend had removed those items and then returned them when they realized an autopsy would be performed and the stuff would be found in her system anyway. So, like, someone was trying to, like, cover or, like, protect her reputation, I guess, and... um. But when it was like, okay, off to autopsy, they were like, fuck, and went and put it back. Um, So the autopsy revealed that her cause of death was a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by alcohol, as her liver showed the effects of long-term heavy drinking, and the death was ruled accidental. How much do you have to drink for your liver to look like that at age 27? That's exactly what I was thinking. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, nuts. Her drink of choice was Southern Comfort. Um, She was often photographed, like, with the bottle hanging out of her purse or um, drinking straight from the bottle on stage. And it was – this was, like, before the days of, like, paid sponsorship. So, like, she was honestly just, like, a walking billboard for Southern Comfort that at one point they sent her a fur coat. Like, thanks, Janice, for all the free promo. And they sent her a fur coat. Isn't that crazy? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's like how many influencers would die at this point to get that (laughs) kind of deal. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, so John Cook, (laughs) John Cook, full tilt boogie manager, (laughs) believed that Joplin had been given um, heroin more potent than received on previous occasions. Um, And also what led him to believe that is several of her dealers other customers died that same weekend of overdoses so it was just like a strong batch that he was dealing that weekend that's horrible (laughs) totally so there has been much mystery around her death primarily because her overdose did not kill her immediately which when the knowledge that I'm about to drop on you is going to blow your mind. So I always imagined a heroin overdose as you die immediately. Like think of think of like a Philip Seymour Hoffman where he was found like with the needle still in his arm. Yeah. Like that's how we always interpreted it as happening. Not in the case of Janis Joplin. So... 
this was all talked about um, by Joplin's publicist turned biographer, Myra Friedman. So Friedman hypothesized that Joplin didn't know she was already dying when she left her hotel room, walked to the lobby, and got changed from the hotel clerk to buy cigarettes from the machine on the property. So, like, she had already completed the fatal injection and then went and did all this stuff. Oh, so, oh my God. Um, while it's certainly more common to hear of overdoses occurring instantly after injection, a delay to death is not unusual if... And this is clarified in the Consumers Union Report on Licit and Illicit Drugs. That report states that the term overdose is frequently erroneous and that those sudden deaths following an injection of heroin are actually the result of a contamination of the product with various substances. So like the fact that the heroin was cut with something weird or gross is what leads to like the combination adversely reacting and killing you immediately. But what death from a literal overdose of heroin pure itself is in fact usually slow. Okay. And that number one makes sense is terrifying (laughs) is blowing my mind and also reminds me for those of you who are real Housewives fans, Megan's a smart person who doesn't watch Housewives, and that's good. So Bethany Frankel <laughs> of Real Housewives fame, her boyfriend, Dennis, who was, like, this guy in his 50s, died two years ago of an opioid overdose. And he wasn't a heroin user. He had back surgery, and he had been taking painkillers. And the story is he took one. He was still feeling pain. He took another and then after a while realized that he started to overdose, told his assistant to get Narcan. They gave him two doses of Narcan and he still died. Oh my god. What um what prescription drug was he taking? Some kind of painkiller like an oxycontin or like something they give you after surgery, like Right. Which ne- most people they only give they'll give you like three and they're like, Good luck. Yeah. So, (laughs) and then that story didn't make sense to me back then because I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, wouldn't you know he was overdosing right away? Why would it take so long? What's like. So he was. Wow. So he was taking an opiate straight from the pharmacy. Yes. Pure in its form and overdosed, recognized that he was overdosing and died. Which makes me. Oh, that that is worse. Yes. I just got chills. That is worse. Yes. But now that – because that story, like, somehow didn't come together and I was like, there must be missing facts, but now that makes sense. Wow, that's exactly the same thing. Yes. So, but it makes you wonder, like, did she know or, like, because she – like, I guess because she, like, took drugs a lot, like, was she able to recognize it? I don't know. I guess we'll never know. No one will know. And there's a chance not because she was mixing stuff. Like, if she was just already fucked up. She could have been like, whoa, like, I need to lie down. Yeah. And then, like, not yeah. realize that that's what was happening. Oh, my God. That's so scary. <laughs> totally terrifying. Don't yeah. take opioids. Don't do it. <laughs> There's a reason. Oh, my God. Don't do it. Ugh. So Janice Joplin was cremated and her ashes were spread into the Pacific Ocean. Is there a more rock and roll way to go out than that? Um, We could probably Ash- hypothesize but no that's pretty rock and roll 
Yeah, ashes in the Pacific Ocean. I just almost said specific ocean, which is like the totally backwards way. Like how many times have you heard someone say Pacific when they meant specific? So many times. That's like that's like the smart person's goof on those two words. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So Janice's career. Janice Joplin was really only famous for three years. And it's crazy how much of an impact she made on music in such a little time. Uh, while she had been working on music since the early 60s, she really only made it around 1967. That's crazy. Uh, three years. I know. Crazy. Um, after rising to fame, following an appearance at a music festival where she was kind of like discovered or hit it big after that music festival, her career included three albums and a fourth one that was released posthumously. And five singles reached the Billboard Hot 100, including a cover of Chris Christopherson's song, Me and Bobby McGee, which rose to number one in March 1971, which was uh, like six-ish months after her death. Wow, three, f- um, four albums in three years really is a lot. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing, I mean nothing, honey, So this is something that we can certainly dive a little more deeply into on a singular Janis Joplin episode, but I kind of feel like she is like a real kind of case study in the anatomy of a drug user. And what I mean to that by that is like, what is the trigger point Mm. that turns someone to drugs? And I think in the case of Janis Joplin... And we'll talk about some stuff that, like, I really just think she was not made for the time in which she was born. So she was progressive. She dated both men and women. Um, So not only progressive musically, but, like, in her personal life. She uh, refused to wear makeup. She was kind of a free spirit and marched to the beat of her own drum. She was an artist. Um, like, I wonder, I, she had it all when you think of, like, her success and stuff, but, like, I wonder if she was actually satisfied of that or if she, like, you know, sometimes when, like, people pass and they were, like, they were just too good to be here, Mm -hmm. like, like, Mm -hmm. that's the saying, like, I kind of wonder, like, was that her case? Like, was she just not, was the world just not ready for her? And there's a probably... Yeah, a pretty big chance of that. And I'm as I'm listening to you, you know, say that, it makes me think, like, as a female artist, because I remember watching a couple of documentaries about, or, like, the biography um, channel episode about how much she was criticized for her appearance, how much she was, like, still kind of put in this hole because she was a, a female artist, and female artists at the time weren't really doing the things that she was doing. Like, she didn't care about being feminine. She didn't care about being sexy. Like, she was doing what she was doing with her music. And, but she still, like, got shit for it. So I think you're right that, like, she was progressive. Like, I'm trying to think of an artist now that's, like, totally accepted for doing stuff like that that's similar to her. And I guess I'm thinking, like, David Bowie was the first person to really, like, bring forth, like, uh, playing with gender roles or appearance to like mainstream music 
mm-hmm. but he was man. I mean, presented as male to the world. I'm trying to think of like an artist now that like, like Gaga, but Gaga's like Gaga still cares about being sexy. Like Gaga still cares about looking good. Right, like it, it's Gaga is show business. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, because she does weird stuff, but it's it's still in the name of of looking good. I'm trying to skip to see what artist did you say that she influenced? Um, yeah, there were a lot. Let me scroll down. So, oh yes, there is one in here who I could see. So the influence of Janis Joplin is so apparent in the musical styles of many prominent female artists today. Even though I just was like, hmm, I can't think of anyone. Um, so Pink, Florence Welch, Stevie Nicks have all spoken about the inspiration they received from jo- from Janis Joplin. I think I can see it in Florence Welch. Yes, definitely. And I actually think I see it in Pink. Because while Pink is still presents as feminine, she has spoken a lot about, um, you know, that she doesn't have, like, the most feminine body and that she doesn't, like care and people criticize that for her and like she thinks it's something that makes her like unique and she's always she's been they've tried to pigeonhole her very much into like specific corners of pop and she has definitely done something different I mean she's still a pop artist but she's definitely done something different so I can I can definitely see that in pink for sure and also like Janis Joplin was born in Texas of all places um (laughs) <laughs> to a religious family and she was the oldest of three children in that family um but she was like kind of the black sheep or at least the ones that like the parents worried about um she was bullied in school um but she found friends in the outcast that would ultimately introduce her to the music that would inspire her to make the unique music of her own she left Texas um, and moved to San Francisco in 1963, and that's where either she found trouble or trouble found her. She was arrested once for shoplifting there, but her drug it, her drug use increased, and she had reputations in San Francisco for using speed, heroin, and psychoactive drugs. She developed an issue with alcohol abuse. And two years later, her friends became concerned about her I mean, she was, like, emaciated, and they convinced her to return to Texas. So, born in Texas, went to San Francisco, had a had a problem, returned to Texas. And while back in Texas, she did counseling. Um, and in these counseling sessions, she revealed that she was concerned about relapsing on drugs if she chose to pursue a musical career, but she was more worried about staying in Texas and having to become a secretary or a wife and mother. Hmm. So, like, it's that kind of thing, too, that makes me think, like, yeah, she was born in the wrong time. Like, Hmm. she, she wasn't satisfied by what American life had to offer a young white Southern woman in the 1960s. Hmm. But I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that was the case for a lot of women and not every one of them became a rock and roll icon or a drug user. So like there was certainly something special about Janis Joplin. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just think maybe she would have fared better, better in a different period in time. It sounds like she kind of had to choose, like, two 
between two paths that neither neither one was really good for her. Like, if she had to stay in Texas, she wouldn't be doing what she loved, but then, like, doing what she loved really led her down, like, a dark road of relapsing on drugs. Totally. You nailed it. Um, she ended up going back to San Francisco, um, and shortly after moving back to San Francisco, she made it big. Uh, this was in 1966 that she moved back to San Francisco, Um, her career, you know, accelerated after that. And I would say in like 1969, punctuated by her performance at Woodstock, um, like around that time was when people started to notice that drugs and alcohol would affect her performances. Hmm. So much like, like in Amy Winehouse, like towards the end, like she wasn't present in her own performances. She would have another period of being clean though in early 1970 February so this was the same year that she died she would have a period of being clean when she traveled to Brazil for an extended stay um, with a friend and it was there she would meet an American tourist named David Nyehaus and they kind of had like a relationship and while in Brazil she kicked her habits apparently Hmm. Um, but the relationship ended when David witnessed Janice shooting up a pawn returning to the United States. So as soon as she came back to the U.S., her bad habits came back with her. Um, kind of sad. I read that. A t- so they broke up then. Um, some point in 1970, between February when she arrived in Brazil and October when she passed, they broke up. And she actually was, I read that she was in a relationship with another man named Seth Morgan at the time of her death, and they were engaged. So she had moved on from this guy she met in Brazil, but a telegram from the Brazil guy, David Nyhouse, arrived at the hotel the day after her death in which he said he loved her. Isn't that some, like, cinematic movie shit? Oh, my God. Ugh. So yeah. sad, David. So, like, as you can tell, she had a very interesting love life, engaged to Seth Morgan. Um, she was engaged once before to a man in Texas during one of her periods of living in Texas. Um, David, the Brazil guy. She also dated country Joe McDonald and Chris Christopherson from the music world and she also dated women. She had an on and off relationship with a friend of hers named Peggy Caserta for years Um, but Caserta was an intravenous drug user and their relationship was toxic because they were just like enablers of each other's drug use. Caserta would write a book titled Going Down with Janice, which is exactly, it's exactly the sexual innuendo that you think it is. She admitted it. Um, In this book, like, she revealed personal details, incriminating details of Janice and beyond, but apparently incriminating to that drug dealer who dealt her the um, fatal heroin. Um, because that drug dealer would um, send people to find Caserta's girlfriend at the time, a woman named Kim Chappelle, after the book came out, and stabbed her girlfriend. <gasps> but the girlfriend survived. Oh, um, my God. But 
they came for Peggy after this book was released. Is this like Narcos? What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's really crazy. So sometimes I forget that Janis Joplin is a part of the 27 Club. And I think I forget that because she looks way older than 27 to me. Yes, she does. What is what? Why? So it's something that kind of like, I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes now when I see pictures of people in the 90s and they're very dressed, very trendy, and I know by looking at them, they're a young person. But because now if you see someone dressed like that, they're probably an older person that's kind of wearing things that are out of date. They look older to me in that photo because it's dated. Janice, I think she kind of looks like like, I can see someone like her now, like, maybe a person in their middle age who, like, is kind of hippie-ish and dresses like that. And I kind of see that when I look at her. But it really, yeah. not to, like, you know, age shame her. Like, she wasn't into makeup. She was kind of, like, being that feminine. Maybe that's it. But she, she definitely does look older than 27. Yeah, that's, like, a really interesting point because her aesthetic is dated by 2020 standards. It ages her when you see like older photos somehow yeah Yeah. interesting (laughs) yeah because like the (laughs) like the lady down the street who gardens in bell bottoms and a (laughs) tie-dyed t-shirt is like in her 60s yep yes yes so i like see that person in that photo yeah (laughs) all right um and I guess hard living will age you. Just throwing that out there too, dude. It really, really does. No, but seriously, it really, uh, it really does. Actually, my yeah. uh, my mom was telling me um, that sometimes people, when they're older, can get necrotic bone damage from dr- hard drinking when they're young. That sounds painful. Yeah. So like. So. It, so like her. Well, I mean, she would d- drink like her eight cups a day though but it was like of southern comfort so yeah okay (laughs) well and also who knows what she was doing in her childhood or when we do the episode we will delve further into that but from what the timeline that we have like when she first started drinking she had had like an alcohol problem for like two years and at that point she would have been 23 like in her early 20s so like right to have a problem by that point, who knows how much had been going on before that in order for her to, like, be where she was at at 27. Um, so remember when I was like, is there a more rock and roll thing than having your ashes scattered in the Pacific Ocean? In the Pacific Ocean? <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, there is. So Janis Joplin altered her will two days before she passed. And in this will alteration, she allocated $2,500, which in 1970 dollars, let me do the math, is like a trillion dollars. And she allocated a trillion dollars for 200 friends to have an all-night party in honor of her at her favorite pub. And they did. So she basically left money in her will for like a rager in her honor. Is there anything more rock and roll than that? Nope. No. <laughs> really? Two days before she died, she did that? Yeah. Do you think she knew that it wasn't going to end well? I don't know. Wait, pretty... how How long do these pure heroin overdoses take? <laughs> like, maybe it was two days in the making. I would think that as a young woman, a famous young woman with a lot of money, it, it's not abnormal to have a will, you know, because you... You know, you want to make sure that the fortune you worked hard for 
is directed in the way that you see fit. So I'm like not surprised that she had a will period, but the fact that she revised it two days before her death, like I would think you only like revise wills like after major life events, like, oh, I have more kids that I need to add into the will or, oh, the, uh, my parents passed and like they were the people who I was like, I would think that major life occurrences warrant a will revision, but I wonder what her inspiration was. I mean, not that it really matters, but it just kind of um, poses the question, did she have a bad feeling? Yeah. You know, listening to like all the time, she was just so on and off the wagon. Like, maybe she had, like, moments of clarity and then they would go away. So maybe this was a time when she was, like, I'm doing it. Like, she was just so all over the place. Maybe this was either a moment of clarity or a moment of not. And she was, like, called her attorney and was, like, I want to do this. Or maybe she called her attorney and was, like, listen, I want to do this. Like, because that's why Either way, that's wild. Like, that's a really wild thing to yeah. put in your will. And do you think that attorney was, like, come again or do you think that attorney was like you got it that'll be four hundred dollars for my time like i, I think janice Chaplin's attorney was totally unfazed he was like yeah yeah what do you want okay what do you want twenty five dollars fine all right fine we're putting it in like why owe me the money i think yeah i think he was totally unfazed uh liz all in all were you are you a janice joplin fan um i really like peace of my heart in fact i was like singing it while i was getting ready um but overall, no, and I, I like Bobby. I like her two famous songs, but to be honest, I haven't really explored much more than that. It's definitely, like, a very distinct style that I don't think I could listen to every single day. Yeah, I think uh, – yeah, I think I agree with you. Like, I definitely like those two songs that you mentioned. Um, but I think her – like, her guttural approach to music almost makes her sound like she's in pain, which one could argue, like – she's emoting pain um but like it just um i'm more of like a mellow kind of music person and this is certainly not mellow uh yes i watched like a lot of interviews with janice joplin um in preparing and uh, i put a couple youtube clips in here in the google doc and i i guess i couldn't decide if she was like quirky or if i was witnessing the effects of drug use from what I remember, she she's definitely, like, different. She's a quirky person. Yeah, maybe it was a little bit of both. Probably. Maybe it was a little bit of both. You know, when okay. I, like, listening to everything about her reminds me of um, Mama Cass. Yes. Like, yeah. how, like, Mama Cass, like, she was really ridiculed for her appearance. She was constantly on diets, and that's kind of, like, what ended up contributing to her death but she was so out there and she did what she wanted like kind of because she had no other choice but like she was such a big personality dressed the way that she wanted to dress like sang the music she wanted to sing and was like really appreciated for it by a lot of people they, they did they have similar like stories to me yeah man that She'd be a really good episode someday. Yeah, so many bands and artists would go on to pay tribute to her. Funny that you'd say that because the Mamas and the Papas did. Leonard Cohen did. Jerry Garcia did. Joan Baez did. Many people did. One of the last things I want to touch on, um, her style. Like, there is no other style like Janis Joplin's. Um, 
she normalized tattoos before they were mainstream. She always had colorful streaks in her hair, was always wearing like several scarves, beaded necklaces and bracelets, just feathers everywhere. So now what my question is, is did Steven Tyler fully rip off Janis Joplin style? <laughs> I mean, when you're describing, it sounds like Steven Tyler. Actually, yeah. Like I, yeah, they're like extremely similar. Yeah, I wonder if he's ever been called for it. We're calling you out, Steven Tyler. <laughs> but then that's like very, though Stevie Nicks has a very individual style. Like she did the same thing with scarves. Like she. But she's like Mother Earth Witch Stevie Nicks. <laughs> she's, yeah. You, it's, it's different. Yeah, it it's is different. different. Honestly, and now that I think about Steven Tyler's face, like, if you just, like, if you blur out his face, it could be, like, skinny Janis Joplin. Yeah. Like, the hair and everything. Skinny Janis Joplin. (laughs) Not that she wasn't, but just, like, he's very thin. Yeah. Yes, he is extraordinarily thin. (laughs) Um... And then, lastly, uh, do you think Janis was so meaningful because she was one of the first, if not the first, to do what she did? Yeah, I mean, I think she had a tremendous voice. Like, it might not be the style I like listening to, but, like, she had a really good voice. Um, And then, like, that's, like, in reality and metaphorically, because she definitely did what she wanted to do. I think it was, like, not always by choice. Like, I don't know if she knew another way to be, but she did what she wanted to march the tune of her own drum, and, like, she really was one of the first, especially for female artists. All right, so she has secured her place in history and on this podcast. Time to shout out some sources who aided in the research of this episode. Honestly, there are a plethora, um, but the main ones, an article by Emily Lyman for Haunted Publications, Self.com, TMZ, Entertainment Weekly, Cultural Collectiva, Weird History, Rock NYC, IMDb, allthingsinteresting.com, and Wikipedia. Want to let us know what you think about the 27 Club, this podcast, or just want to let us know what celebrity death you can't get over? Email your feedback to hollywoodpodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at hollywoodpodcast to get clues about future episodes and photos that go along with the stories. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holly Weird. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And join us for part two of the 27 Club series. We think it will really light your fire.